0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion. For the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome back. We are in Acts today, Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, we'll open up and we'll start at Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And we're going to go ahead and read through verse 16 today. Uh, just a reminder that when we pick up in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is preparing to leave Ephesus. Uh, he has preached the gospel there. Uh, over the course of two years, and there, at the end of those two years, there had been that great uproar. Uh, The gospel had begun to make inroads not only into the society, but it had had an impact upon the economy. Uh, The silversmiths were deeply upset by the fact that as people were converted to the Christian faith, they were abandoning their paganism, abandoning these pagan practices, and in particular, the worship of the goddess Artemis, and as a result, they brought a charge against Paul, and there was that great riot in Ephesus. Paul was vindicated in the end, um, but Acts chapter 20 does signal a turning point in the narrative. Um, Paul is going to be leaving Ephesus now and moving on to other places, and that's where we pick up the narrative today. So when Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says, after the uproar ceased, just a reminder, that is the uproar. So beginning at verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, the son of Pherus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutyches, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Don't you love that? So, word to the wise. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to mitylane And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Two days ago, on Monday, was it Monday? I guess it was, what was the 5th? What's today? Monday. Monday was the 5th, that was more than two days ago. They're all a blur for me, but on Monday, the 5th, uh, a rock and roll legend, Paul Simon, announced that he was going on his final tour. And it was appropriately named the Homeward Bound Tour. Uh, Some of you remember those Simon and Garfunkel lyrics. I'm sitting in a railway station. Got a ticket for my destination. On a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand, and every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. (laughs) I'm not as good as Mark, but nevertheless, you get the idea. Homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. Paul Simon's 76 years old, and I suppose after all these years, decades, and it's hard to believe, can you believe it? Forever young, Paul Simon, but 76 years old, I suppose he figures he can hang up the spurs now and and go home and take a rest. He, of course, is not the only one. Lots of people are doing that now. Elton John also announced that he's giving up touring. You know, that kind of work is strenuous. Uh, It's hard on the body sleeping in hotels and traveling from place to place, and always performing, always having to be on, always having to put up the show. And so it's not surprising that he is doing his final tour. I wonder, however, if Paul Simon realizes he was not the first Paul to do that. Um, Long before Paul Simon ever announced his farewell tour, the Apostle Paul started his farewell tour. And that's really what Acts chapter 20 is all about. This is Paul's final tour, as it were, of the mission field, at least as far as the book of Acts is concerned. Paul is going to leave this place. He's going to go through Macedonia, but ultimately his destination is Jerusalem. And if you know how the book of Acts ends, you know that Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's ultimately arrested there. We'll discover why he was arrested there. He'll be taken into custody, and he'll be transported up the coast to the headquarters of the Roman province at Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who went to the Holy Land with me, or if you've been to the Holy Land, you most likely have been to Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea by the sea. There are a couple of Caesareas in the ancient world. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, for example, where Jesus took his disciples and asked them a question, who do men say that I am? We also visited Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea Maritima. And Paul was imprisoned there for two years, after which, As a Roman citizen, he had a right to appeal to the emperor, and he did. He appealed to Caesar, and then he was transported to Rome, where he was imprisoned for another two years. And that's basically where the book of Acts ends. Now, we don't know that that's where Paul's life ends. We do know that he was martyred in Rome, but we don't know that it was on that particular occasion, that particular imprisonment in Rome. There are some other ancient sources that suggest, and some other theories that suggest, that Paul was actually freed on that occasion and traveled on to Spain and established some churches there. Certainly Paul had an intention to go to Spain. But as far as the book of Acts is concerned, that's the end of the story. We find Paul sitting in a prison cell in Rome when this book ends. So there's a very real sense in which this is Paul's final tour, his homeward bound tour from Acts chapter 20 on to the end. So in many respects, it's a very poignant part of the book of Acts, as we begin to wrap up our study of the Apostle Paul's career as a minister in the ancient world. Uh, Why did Paul decide to go back through Macedonia? We're told that he left Ephesus, he decided to go back through Macedonia uh, before he traveled on to Jerusalem. Why did he do this? Why this final tour of the mission field? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. We talked about some of them last week. First of all, Paul wanted to go back through the churches in Macedonia and ultimately down to Greece because this was his habit. Uh, Paul did not just preach the gospel and evangelize people. He was an itinerant preacher, there's no doubt about that, but Paul was also a discipler. Uh, he had a great desire to not only see people get converted to the Christian faith, but he also wanted to see them grow in terms of their maturity. He wanted to see them deepen in terms of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul frequently went back through the places where he had established churches, pecking in on the believers. Uh, Paul was not immune to what was happening to these people that he had evangelized. He, he had a great concern for them. Paul was a pastor. And he had concern for his flock, no matter how widely scattered that flock might possibly be. And so Paul went back to these churches frequently. We saw this uh, during the first missionary journey. We said that when Paul went on that first missionary journey with Barnabas, he traveled through the churches of Galatia, or through the region of Galatia, establishing churches there. He went to Pisidian Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra and Derbe. And one of the things that we noticed in that first missionary journey is that in every single place that Paul went, He was persecuted, remember that? Driven from town to town, from pillar to post. In the case of Lystra, he was attacked, physically abused, stoned, dragged outside the city in an unconscious state, and left for dead. You may recall when we finished studying the first missionary journey, I said, it's a wonder that Paul ever went on another one after that. But what's most fascinating is that when he gets to the end of that first missionary journey, and he knows he's got to report back to the church in Antioch, the church that had sent him out. We said the most direct route from Derby was to travel overland through modern-day Turkey, which would have taken him through his hometown of Tarsus, where he could have certainly found friends and, and support, but Paul didn't do that. Instead, we're told, he and Barnabas went right back through the towns where they had just been, where they had been beaten and persecuted and abused Strengthening the believers. And when Paul sent off on his second missionary journey, you'll recall that he and Barnabas had parted company by this point. He was taking somebody else with him, Silas, with him on this particular occasion. But his intention was to go back through those churches again, strengthening the believers. So when Paul leaves Ephesus after two years, and it says he goes back through Macedonia, one of the reasons why Paul went back through Macedonia, through an area that he'd already been through, where he'd already preached, where there were already churches, is because Paul wanted to strengthen the believers. You know, when you're there only for a few months, perhaps, there's not a whole lot of time to go particularly deep. Now, Paul spent a lot of time, as we're going to see today, preaching and teaching, I mean, he spent hours doing this on a daily basis. But nevertheless, he was not there for any considerable length of time. And so one of the reasons why he went back through Macedonia is because Paul wanted to strengthen the churches. Another reason he went back, and we talked about this at great length last week, was because there were problems in one of those churches. Uh, One of the very important churches, the church in Corinth. Uh, We said that Corinth was uh, that very strategically located city on that isthmus between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south. It was a very important place. Paul had established a church there. He had great hopes for it, but he had received words that there in that very secular city, many of the believers were falling back into old practices, and they were bringing disrepute upon the church. And so Paul, we said, wanted to go back to Corinth to see what was happening there and perhaps get them back on track. The third reason why Paul wanted to go back through Macedonia, and this is not clear in the book of Acts but it is very clear in his epistles, Paul was collecting money. Uh, This is made clear in his epistle to the Romans and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Those are his three longest letters and in all three of those letters he mentions a collection for the saints in Jerusalem i've always thought that paul was deeply impressed by what happened in acts chapter 13. acts chapter 13 is the description of the church in antioch of syria the church that sent out those first missionaries the church that first sent paul out on his missionary journeys and we said when we studied that section that this was a church that changed the world. And we asked the question, well, what kind of a church does that? What kind of a church really changes the world? You know, this was just no little chapel where people came and, and, and it was nice and you heard a word of encouragement, you sang a few songs and you went on. This was a church that really had a missionary zeal. They wanted to turn the world upside down in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we asked the question, what kind of a church does that? And we looked at that church, and one of the things that we noticed was that it was filled with all different kinds of people. It was filled with people of high estate and low estate, the rich and the poor. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, there were black people and there were white people, and they were all there together. And even though the first century was a deeply divided society, where these groups generally did not mix, all of the sudden they were mixing they discovered that what they had in common, that is, a faith in Jesus Christ, was far greater than anything that divided them. The dividing walls of hostility, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, had come down. And it was unprecedented in the ancient world. And Paul knew that was a powerful, powerful witness to what the grace of God in Christ could do. And so he was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem, from the Gentile churches. The church in Jerusalem was a very important church. It was important primarily because of where it was located. It was Jerusalem. It was the first church. This is, of course, where Jesus died, in Jerusalem. It's one of the reasons why Jerusalem is still one of the most important cities in the world today. It's not as big as Chicago or London or New York, but just watch the news. And Jerusalem is at the heart of it all. Why is it so controversial that the president has decided to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Jerusalem is an important city. It is the spiritual home of three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's an important place, and it was important because it was the place where Jesus died. It was the place where he was resurrected. It was the first place that he appeared to his disciples. It was there that the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and it was born on Pentecost. So this was an important church, but it was a poor church. See, the church in Jerusalem was comprised mostly of Jewish Christians. The first believers, we must always remember, were Jews. And they really thought of themselves as Jews. Simply Jews who realized that the long-promised Messiah had arrived. But because they had embraced Jesus Christ, they were rejected by everybody else. They were rejected by their fellow Jews because they had accepted Christ. But they were also rejected by what? The Roman authorities, who had problems with Jews to begin with, and particularly these Jews. Why? Because they worshiped a man who had been condemned and executed by the Romans as an enemy of the state. He claimed to be a king when there was no king but Caesar. And here they are, claiming that he was back from the dead and alive again And so that church was really persecuted. And so what Paul wanted to do was collect a fund, an act of benevolence on behalf of the Gentile churches for their brothers in Jerusalem. And Paul thought that if he could take that money to Jerusalem and give it to the saints there and say, here, this is from your brothers and sisters elsewhere, and they would say, brothers and sisters, where? And he would have said, well, in Galatia. In Asia, in Macedonia, all these places, Paul thought that would be a powerful Christian witness. Well, it was a very noble idea. It didn't work out well, by the way, unfortunately for Paul. But it was a very noble idea. And so when Paul left Ephesus after two years and does this final tour of the mission field before heading off to Jerusalem, these are the reasons why he was traveling through Macedonia strengthening the churches addressing problems in Corinth, and collecting the Jerusalem fund. Now, I don't want to spend any more time on this, except to note the people that were accompanying Paul at this point. Uh, There's a whole long list of them you'll see there in verses 4 through 6. These were people who were representing the churches that Paul had established and who had contributed to the Jerusalem fund and who were going as representatives of their home churches to Jerusalem. Okay, So that's who these people are. They are Paul's companions, people that he had, of course, evangelized along the way. They had come to faith, and now they were accompanying him on his journey to Jerusalem to present this money to the church there in that city. And there's probably a lot that we could say about it. The question on the screen is, what's in a name? Well, actually, there's a great deal that you can discover from a name. When we looked at Acts chapter 13, just turn for a moment to Acts chapter 13. Let's go back and refresh your memory just a little bit. We're told in Acts chapter 13, now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And as we know, the world was never the same again. But it's interesting to note that Luke says there were in that church prophets, uh, translate that preachers, and teachers. And I said what's fascinating is that it's plural. It's not just one preacher, not just one teacher, preachers and teachers, and then he lists them. Barnabas, who is Barnabas? Well, we've already met Barnabas in the book of Acts by this point. Barnabas was a Jew. He was a Jew of the diaspora. He lived in Cyprus. Uh, He had sold a piece of property and given the proceeds to the church, and as a result, the apostles had called him not Joseph, which was his real name, but Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement. So the first preacher or teacher that is mentioned in Acts chapter 13 was a Jew, but not a Jew from Jerusalem, a Jew from off. Second thing, Simeon, who was called Niger. Now what does the word Niger mean? It means black. So presumably this was a black man, Simeon, who was called Niger. So you have a Jew but a Jew from Off living on Cyprus who is worshiping and working alongside as a preacher and a teacher, a man named Simeon who was presumably black. And they're working alongside Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius of Cyrene. The word Lucius is a Latin name. So presumably this man is not a Jew. He is a Gentile and he is from Cyrene. Uh, we're told that after the uh, destruction of the church in Jerusalem uh, that many people fled and some of them went to Cyrene and Cyrene helped to establish other churches. We're told that there was Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is the long line of Herods. There were a whole host of them. None of them were particularly good, but they were high-ranking. They were influential people. and We're told that Manaean was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, so this is a man who operates within the circles of power and influence. And then added to these men was this fellow Saul, who was Saul, well of course this is the Apostle Paul, a man who had been a persecutor of the church, who even at the time of his conversion was still breathing out murderous threats against the followers of the way, who'd had a born-again experience there on the road to Damascus, who was what we would probably call a Jesus freak, And all these people, Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, people of high estate and low estate, people who had charismatic experiences, if you will, they were all there in one place worshiping the Lord. Now that is a hodgepodge. People who, as I said earlier, would have had nothing to do with each other but all of a sudden find that what unites them is far greater than anything that divides them. That is a marvelous picture of the church. And I only say that because we have something similar, I think, here in Acts chapter 20. We have a list of all of these people who are going to be representatives of their various churches as they take this money to Jerusalem. And two names in particular stand out to me. I don't know who some of these people are. Nobody really knows who some of these people are. We don't know anything other than that they're listed here in the book of Acts. But two of them strike me as particularly interesting. In verse 4, we're told that there was Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. What's in a name? Well, in this instance, I think a great deal. When you named people in the ancient world, a name was very important. I don't think names are as important today to many people as they were. They, didn't, they don't have the significance today that they oftentimes did in the ancient world. Um, now, we tried to do that with our children. We, we really did. In fact, um, I did not want my first child to be named after me. I thought he deserved a better name. But my wife said, I gave birth, I'm naming the first one. So, you know... <laughs> So it kind of trumped me, and so she insisted that the first child should be named for me. So that's what we did. But I said, I get to name the second child. And so when the second child came along, I had just finished a biography of Stonewall Jackson. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Well, and here I am, a Yankee from Pennsylvania. But nevertheless, I was so impressed by the character of Stonewall Jackson, I said, I want to name the second child Jackson. And we named him Jackson Graham, after Stonewall Jackson, and Billy Graham, who I thought was a great man. And uh, when we had our first child, we went to one of Billy Graham's final crusades in Charlotte, and I had the privilege of hearing him preach in person. And so we named our second child Jackson Graham, big names to live up to. And then the third child came along, and my wife had just finished a biography of Queen Elizabeth II. I was so impressed by her Christian faith. But she had a beloved grandmother, who had been named for one of her father's favorite characters from literature, Cora from the uh, Last of the Mohicans, and so we named our daughter Cora Elizabeth. And then when the third one, or the fourth one came along, how do I remember? We have so many children, I can't keep count of them right now. But the fourth one came along, and we both had one of my great heroes from the Old Testament, was the King Josiah who was responsible for the great revival that took place in Israel after a period of of great spiritual dearth? And so we named him Josiah Lee, after another confederate general, so that's how that worked. Um, Not knowing that those great heroes would fall out of favor in our politically correct culture as it does today. But the point in that was that we wanted them to understand that there is something in a name. There is something to live up to. There is something to admire. You know, oftentimes what people do today is they get a book on baby names. And they flip through and they say, oh, there's an interesting name. Ariel. What the heck does that mean? I don't know. It's a Disney princess, but okay. We don't think much about names. But I want you to understand in the ancient world they did. Names mattered and you can learn a great deal from a name. The name Aristarchus is the word from which we get the term aristocracy. Now, unless you were a member of the ruling class or the aristocracy, you're not likely to name your child Aristarchus. So I think we are safe to assume that this man, Aristarchus, came from the high ranks of society. His father looked on him and probably said, we're the ruling class. Noblesse oblige. To whom much has been given, much is required. So I'm going to remind you of that, young man. I'm naming you Aristarchus. But it's interesting to note that he is paired with another fellow from Thessalonica. What's his name? Secundus. What does it mean? It means second. Now you say to yourself, well, who would name their child second? Probably nobody. This was most likely a slave. Slaves were not entitled to have a name because that gave them position or status in society oftentimes. They were numbered. So your first slave was known as primus, one. And your second slave was oftentimes referred to as secundus, two. And it went right on down the line for as many slaves as you have. Well, isn't it interesting that Paul has in his traveling company is these churches are collecting representatives of their body to take this fund to Jerusalem that they pair together Aristarchus and Secundus. Here they are side by side. Let me tell you something, that is a picture of the Christian church. It's not a body of people in which everybody is exactly alike. It is a picture of all kinds and sorts of people who have discovered that whatever their differences may have been, whether you come from an old family or you are brand new to the scene, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are both sons or daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see them there together. So that's just a little bit of insight and a a wonderful message to all of us to always strive to be welcoming and to welcome into our mix, into our company, all different sorts and kinds of people because this is what God would have for His church. I always tell people if you're uncomfortable with that image, you are not going to be happy in heaven because the marriage supper of the Lamb is a picture of a people, from every tribe, language, and nation under heaven, worshiping together, falling down before the throne, and worshiping the Lamb. We get just a little picture of that here. So Paul travels throughout Macedonia. Eventually he goes down to Corinth, we're told, and he stayed there in Corinth for some time during the winter months. It was very dangerous, of course, to travel by ship in those days, and so Paul stays there through the winter months. He winters there in Corinth until the winter begins to break. And then he is going to take a ship and he's going to head to Jerusalem. And these are going to be his traveling companions. However, we are told that when he was about to set out on his way to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Passover, he receives word that what? That there was a plot being made against him. Verse 3. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul had decided to leave from Corinth and travel by ship to Syria, where he would then travel overland to Jerusalem. But he receives word that there was a plot. The plot is hatched by who? By the Jews. In other words, by his own people, his own countrymen. And they want to put him to death. Uh, in those days, if you were traveling to Jerusalem, and Jews oftentimes did, they were expected to do that at least once in their life, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, they would oftentimes travel on what were known as pilgrim ships, they would be packed with people making their way to Jerusalem. It would have been a very dangerous journey for Paul if he knew that there was a plot afoot because it was a long journey, it was a treacherous journey. It would have been nothing for somebody to kill Paul in a dark night when they were at sea. Strangle him or kill him with a knife or perhaps push him overboard and his body would be lost and nobody would know what had happened to him. So it was by God's grace that he learned of this plot and he decided not to take the pilgrim ship but instead to travel back through Macedonia where he had just been, go to another port and take another ship on to Jerusalem. So that's what Paul's plan was. But before they get there, we're told he stopped at Troas. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And that's where we pick up the narrative today on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I think the real significance of verses seven through 12 is that they give us a picture, a unique picture of the early church worshiping. Do you know what the word worship means? Anybody know? Exactly, that's exactly. It comes from the old English. Uh, somebody's been paying attention in these classes. Um, comes from the old English, it means worth ship. You can see how it got translated down to us worthship, worship. But what it really meant was worth ship. It meant to apply worth or value to someone or to something. Uh, even in England today. Um, high-ranking officials, for example, the Lord Mayor of London is referred to as your worship. All right, Your worth You have worth, you have value of significance because of your position. So what real worship is, is applying worth or value. And this is something that we need to remember, I think, in this age in which we are accustomed to being entertained. Oftentimes people go off to church and they want to know what they're going to get out of it. If that's why you're going to church... You're going for the wrong reason. Now, that's not to say, believe me, that you can't get something from church. Hopefully, you can. But when we go to church with the expectation that we're going to get something from it, we're going for the wrong reason because church is not about us. Church is about who? It's about God. Isn't it interesting that in the very first words out of the clergyman's mouth on Sunday are these, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom now and forever. The focus is immediately on who? On God. He's the focus. Uh, That's one of the reasons Brian pointed this out in a sermon some time ago. This is one of the reasons why our churches are oriented the way that they are. When you walk into St. Philip's Church, what's the first thing you see? You see one of two things. You see the altar with the cross, or you see the pulpit. Both of which bring your attention not to yourself, but what? God. That's the whole idea. That's what worship is really all about. It is there to glorify God. So while we may get a benefit from being in worship, the real audience is not the congregation. And the real performer is not the minister. God is the audience and we are the performers and we are there for his glory and for his pleasure. That's the real point of worship. So we get a picture of what worship really looked like in the early church. And presumably they had their focus right. So, if we want to worship properly in such a way that it pleases God, certainly we want to take a look at how the early church worshiped. How did they do it? Well, we got a great picture of it here in Troas. What do we do, what do we find out about it? Well, the first thing that we discover about worship in the early church from this account in the book of Acts is that it took place On Sunday. It took place on Sunday. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and prolonged his speech until midnight. The first day of the week. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant for a couple of reasons. It's significant, first of all, because for Jews, that was not the day of worship. The day of worship was not the first day of the week, which is what? What's the first day of the week? No Saturday's not the first day of the week. No Monday's not the first day of the week. Sunday. Go through the days of the week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. See, that just goes to show you what our culture's done to us, hasn't it? Oh, Sunday's the last day of the week. Monday's the first day of the week. Monday's the first day of the work week. But Sunday's the first day of the week. The last day of the week... Is Saturday. And in the Old Testament, that was the day on which God, having created the world in six days, he did what on the seventh day? He rested. It was a Sabbath. It was a Sabbath. And for Jews, the Sabbath was sacred. It was sacred in the Old Testament. Ten commandments. You were to what? Keep holy the Sabbath. Day Jews did no work on the Sabbath. Jesus oftentimes got into trouble with the Pharisees, ran afoul of them, why? Because he healed people precisely on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was a sacred day. Jews worshiped on the Sabbath, and they kept the Sabbath holy. But lo and behold, when we get here, we discover that these believers, who have their roots in the Jewish faith, Paul himself being a Jew, or worshiping not on the Sabbath, but on Sunday. Now that's significant because for Jews to abandon the Sabbath, for Jews to break what appears to be one of the commandments, something extraordinary must have happened. What in the world would persuade Paul and others? that it was more appropriate to worship on the first day of the week in violation of the Ten Commandments which said keep holy the Sabbath. What happened on the first day of the week? (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection. And from that moment on, the early believers began to worship on the first rather than the last day of the week and they began to call Sunday the Lord's Day. Why? Because it was His day, it was the day that He rose, it was the day that He triumphed over death and the grave. That changes everything! We are no longer under the law, we are now under grace. Why? Because He has triumphed over these things. He has fulfilled the law by His righteous death and His glorious resurrection. And so Sunday became that glorious day, it was the Lord's day, holy unto the Lord. At least Chick-fil-A understands that. And they stay stay closed on Sunday. But they understand the significance of that. This was the new Christian Sabbath. Now that's important for us. Why? Because as I said, only something on the level of a resurrection could have ever persuaded the Jews to move from a Saturday to a Sunday. For centuries they had worshipped on Saturday. To me that's one of the most powerful evidences for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead fact that the community suddenly stopped worshiping on the last day of the week, and they began to worship on the first day of the week. Extraordinary. So i got to tell you, I am not one of those people that say, well, why don't we have a service on Saturday night? It's so much more convenient for people. It's not a matter of convenience, my friends. It's not a matter of convenience. Sunday is the Lord's Day. And by worshiping on Sunday, by setting aside Sunday, we are bearing witness to the fact that the resurrection happened and that we are people of a risen Lord. That's the first thing that we notice here about worship in the early church. Sunday was important to them. What did they do on Sunday? Well, first thing we notice is that they had preaching. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and we're going to come back to that, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Oh, Paul's one of my heroes, there you go. (laughs) Paul preached. Those who built St. Philip's Church in the Wren Gibbs style understood the importance of preaching. When this church was built, preaching was a high priority. You can tell that because the most prominent feature in the church is that pulpit. When I first climbed into the pulpit, I thought I was going to need an oxygen tank to preach my first sermon. It's an imposing place. It's an intimidating place. And it was a reminder to the preacher of the importance of the message that he came to proclaim. It's interesting to note that as time has gone by and as preaching has fallen out of fashion, notice how the pulpits seem to have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller in churches because that's not what matters. In many churches today, there's no pulpit at all. They bring out a lectern or they bring out a stand or a music stand or something else. That's not the most prominent feature. But it's interesting to note that there was preaching. And preaching and presumably teaching. Uh, Not just what we would call a simple little homily, Uh, I love one of the things that John Stott once said. He said, sermonettes make Christianettes. (laughs) And it's true. Now, somebody might say, well, I think you guys go on too long. Well, I'll tell you this much. There are some sermons that can be 30 minutes long, and they seem like they're 15. And then there are other sermons that seem like they're only 15 minutes long, but they seem like they're in eternity. <laughs> Until midnight, Until midnight <laughs> where you fall asleep and fall out the window. <laughs> exactly. But one thing is very clear, preaching was a priority. Paul gave, here in Acts chapter 20, a long sermon. It's a long sermon, and it's very clear it is not aimed at entertainment. Now, that's not to say it didn't have some entertaining elements in it. It's not to say that Paul was not an engaging speaker. I don't think Paul was by any means boring. And I can tell you right now, Jesus was not. If you've got these images of Jesus' as sort of Casper milk toast, sort of effeminate Jesus out there, sort of very pious, let me tell you, Jesus was a rough-and-ready sort of fellow. First of all, he spent all of his life, the early part of his life, in what, a carpenter shop. Everywhere he went, He walked. And he walked long distances. Jesus would have been muscular. He would have been strong. And when he told a story, he knew how to tell a story. He talked about camels creeping through the eye of a needle. He knew how to hold a crowd and convey a message. I don't think Paul was by any means boring. But I can tell you he did not aim at entertainment. His purpose was not to entertain. His purpose was to edify There are lots of preachers out there, if you can even give them the name or title of preacher, who are very entertaining. But just because something is touching doesn't make it healing. And there are lots of sermons out there that are entertaining, lots of sermons that are out there that are touching, but they're not particularly healing when it comes to matters of the soul. Well, I can tell you right now, Paul did not aim at entertainment. And there's nothing that indicates, given what happened to Eutyches, that he was aimed at some sort of an emotional response. You know, there are some preachers that that they feel, if they can make you cry, they've been effective. And still they aim at an emotional response. There are some worship services that that's what people are looking for. I'm looking for an emotional response. And so you'll sing that same chorus over and over and over again until what? until somebody breaks down in tears. I call those 7-Eleven songs. (laughs) Seven words sang 11 times. (laughs) Now that's not in any way meant to be denigrating toward contemporary Christian music, because I'll be honest with you, there's some very good contemporary Christian music out there. But I've been in churches where the whole purpose, in fact, I was in a worship service one time where we're waiting for the sermon to begin, and they started out with this whole set of music. And I mean, people were standing up, and they're waving their hands, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that, by the way. I know some of you might say, oh, I can't. I don't have a problem. If you want to raise your hands and worship, that's perfectly fine. Why should we not get excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and God's presence among his people? We stand up and shout and make a fools of ourselves at football games, and then in church we're just sort of and we dare not laugh either. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands in worship. Everything needs to be done, however, in decently and in order. But I'm sitting there in this worship service, and at one point, the minister got up when it was time for the sermon, and he said, you know, we're just so caught up in worship right now, we're not going to have a word tonight. We're just going to sing. And he sat down, and I thought, well, that's that. Because What? Because unless God's word is preached, we're not hearing a word from him. That's primarily how God speaks to us, through his word. Now he can speak to us through songs, don't get me wrong. Sometimes he speaks to us through the words of the minister, praise the Lord. But God doesn't promise to bless those things. What he does promise, what the book of Isaiah says never comes back void or empty, is the word of the Lord. So if you go to a church and preaching's not a priority, get out of there. You may be entertained, but you're not going to be edified. You may be touched, but you'll never be healed. Don't come for Jeff Miller. Don't come for Brian McGreevy. Don't come for Andrew O'Dell. Don't come for Ryan Street. Don't come for Mark Bouton. Come for the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel wandered far afield, it was because there was a famine in the land for the word of the Lord. That's what we need and we need it desperately. So Paul was not aimed at an emotional response, which is not to say that sometimes people didn't get emotional. Of course they do. The word of the Lord could cut to the quick, and it can make you emotional, but that's not what it's aimed at. Your whole aim is to get people worked into a froth. Well, that's, that's not the only way to do it. So this was a church that placed a priority on preaching. Here's something else. They celebrated the Lord's Supper figures very prominently here on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. Now, presumably, the preaching took place because we're told that after Eutyches fell out of the window and died, they went back upstairs and they broke bread. But the breaking of bread was very important. And the breaking of bread was not just a fellowship meal. This was always a reference to the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. So this is an emphasis upon word and sacrament. This is the beauty of the Anglican tradition, my friends. If you go in to some traditions of the church, uh, I think, for example, in many of the Protestant traditions, and I know I've got people out there that are not Anglicans, so don't take offense, and I know I've got some people out there that are Roman Catholic, so don't take offense, but one of the things that you'll notice is that in a lot of Protestant churches, the emphasis is all on the preaching. You get 45 minutes, oftentimes a very good exposition, You come in, you sing a hymn, you have a prayer, 45 minutes of good Bible teaching and exposition, sort of the sort of thing that I'm trying to do here. And then you sing a hymn, have a prayer, and everybody goes home. And you're blessed. But then you go to the Roman Catholic Church and what? They celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, take and eat this. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you get together, break the bread. Give thanks. And remember the Lord until he comes again. But I've discovered that oftentimes the sermons are more homilies than they are a serious exposition of the scripture. Sacred thoughts with Father Paul. The beauty of the Anglican tradition is that we try to balance both of those things, don't we? Word and sacrament. Did you ever notice that our service is split right down the middle? The whole first part of the service is called the liturgy of the word. The second part of the service is called the liturgy of the table. And so we move. That's why the pulpit is out where it is and the altar is up where it is because once you've heard the word of the Lord, this is why I always say, the Baptists say, well, you need to have an altar call. We have an altar call every Sunday. We have Holy Communion. The word is preached, and if people's hearts are moved, they are respond to do what? To come to the Lord's table and to participate in it and I am not one of those that believes that the Lord's table is just a bare and naked sign. Paul mentions that one of the problems of the church in Corinth was that they were eating the bread and drinking the wine unworthily, and he said that's why some of you become sick and died. So I believe that Christ is truly present there in those elements in bread and wine. Now, I'm not going to be superstitious about it, but in some mysterious way, the Lord is present in a very real way. The Lord's Supper was a part of worship in the early church. It should be a part of worship in our churches today. But there was something else that they had. They had fellowship. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. So you have the preaching of the word, you have the breaking of the bread, and after the service, there was a time of what? Fellowship, in which they would just have informal conversation, a time together as the body of Christ, as a family. You know, that's important for families. It's one of the things that we've tried to implement at our homes, you know, everybody's got these cell phones, which are both a blessing and a curse. And one of the things that we try to do in our families, when we have family time, everybody's gotta take this and put it up on the shelf so that we can have time fellowship together that is so important for a church now you can't just have fellowship and no preaching you can't just have preaching and no eucharist you can't just have eucharist and no preaching these things go together it's a package deal but it's so important for strengthening the body of christ to encourage one another to build each other up for the work of ministry and all of those elements or present. We notice this is exactly what we saw in Acts chapter two. The earliest church is depicted as what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to what? And to the prayers. That is praying for one another. I'm so thankful for Frenchie Richards and uh, her team of prayer warriors who've come alongside to assist us at the Wednesday night service one of the things that we've implemented during communion at the two side doors, we have prayer ministers. Because we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can go there and we can unburden and pray for one another. The prayers of the clergy are not the most efficacious prayers necessarily. People seem to think we have a toll-free line and if you go to the clergyman, it's going to be a whole lot better. We can pray for one another. And so they did. And that brings us to Acts chapter 20, verses 13 and following. But before we get there, of course, what everybody wants to know is, what about Eutychus? (laughs) What about this young man? i got to tell you, this is the most encouraging part of the story as far as I'm concerned. I get a little hot up here. I mean, Paul was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. He was an astounding man. He had an astounding ministry. And it's such an encouragement to know that people even fell asleep during Paul's sermons. (laughs) Wow! That takes a great burden off a man, I'll tell you. You can picture the scene. Uh, Paul's up there. He was going on. He he really felt that he had to get the message across. And um, he was going on. It's midnight, you can just see, we're told that the lights were flickering, the air was stale, sort of like it is in here right now, and Eutychus is doing his best. You know, the spirit is willing, folks, but sometimes the flesh is just weak. And Eutychus is up there on that third-story window trying to get a little air, trying to wake up when my wife had our first child. I was the rector of a little church up in the northern part of the state, a um, place called Cheraw South Carolina. I was the only man. I was the only priest. It was tough duty in those days. And uh, I was 24, 25, I guess, at the time. I'd just been ordained a deacon and passed on to become a priest. and I was about 25 or 26. And I'm up there preaching my heart out. I mean, I am giving it everything. And the rector's wife, who's just given birth, Is sitting down there in the front pew. (laughs) I mean completely going out! And I had to say to her, Kristen, after church, say, you can't fall asleep. I'm trying to stay awake, but the baby was up all night long. And She said, I'm trying to let you, you know, get some rest so you can preach. I said, well, you can't fall. I said, it looks real bad when the rector's (laughs) wife is in the front pew drooling. I said, you got to stop that. Eh? you got to cut it out. And, and she said, okay, I'll try. <laughs> I felt so bad. She'll tell you the true story. So a couple of weeks later, uh, she was getting changed, and I noticed that she had all these red marks on her leg. I said, my gosh, what happened to you? And she said, oh, that's from church. And I said, what do you mean it's from church? And she said, I was stabbing myself in the leg with a pen, trying to stay awake <laughs> during your sermon. Oh, well. I said, whatever you do, stay away from the third-story window. Don't sit in the balcony. Um, It happens. Uh, It happens, and poor Eudiches, he fell out. I'm sure they never let him live it down, no pun intended. But at any rate, he fell out of the window, and uh, when they went down, we're told he was taken up Dead. Uh, But Paul went down and bent over him and taking up in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Was he dead? Or did he just appear dead? Um, We don't know. We don't know the answer to it. Uh, The text seems to say both. It says when he went down, uh, he was taken up dead. What does that mean? Taken up as though he were dead, looked as though he were dead. Because Paul comes down and says, don't be afraid, his life is in him. We don't know. Perhaps it was a resurrection. Paul certainly had the ability, by God's grace, to do that sort of thing. We know the apostles did. Um, Peter raised people from the dead. Um, Jesus certainly, we know, raised people from the dead. In the case of Jairus' daughter, it was a very similar situation, not that she fell out of a window. But when they got there, the mourners had already arrived. The girl was up there on on the bed, and Jesus went in and he said, Don't be alarmed, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Well, People in the ancient world generally knew when people died because death was such a prominent thing. They didn't live long. The average lifespan in those days was about 35. So, you know, if you were 40, you were were an old person and some of you would be an absolute miracle living in the first century. That's the way it was in the ancient world. And so presumably they understood this sort of thing. And yet Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Well, did he mean that she had not died? That she was really just in a deep coma? No, I think he meant she was dead. But as far as Jesus was concerned, he had come there to wake her up. So was it a case where Eutychus had died? Well, perhaps. Perhaps he was dead. But if he was, it's a powerful picture of you and me, isn't it? We pass through this life, oftentimes in a very drowsy state when it comes to spiritual matters, oblivious to the importance of these things. We sort of fade in and fade out of consciousness when it comes to the things of God. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. That's the way Paul describes us in Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, did what? He made us alive even when we were dead. It is by grace that you have been saved, not by works so that no man may boast. I think Eutyches is a powerful picture of us. So often our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. But God is a God whose property is always to have mercy, to forgive and to restore and to bring new life. It's a powerful final tour that Paul has. When we come back together again next week, we'll take a look at Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20 is a very powerful chapter if you're interested in the life of the Apostle Paul because here in this chapter we get a great picture of Paul, the public figure, out there preaching, doing this final tour of the mission field, but you also get a very powerful picture of Paul, the private man, as he deals with people on an individual basis, particularly as he deals with the Ephesian elders. So when we come back together again, God willing, next week we'll take a look at this powerful story of Paul's farewell to these people with whom he had spent so much time and so much energy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul, for his faithful ministry. We thank you, Lord, for this farewell Tour that he went on. We see ourselves in this story, Lord. We realize that you don't worship, you don't want us to worship you just in form. You want us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We can have vested choirs, we can have pipe organs, we can have praise bands and fog machines and all of those things that are so impressive to the world when a heart is truly converted and people sing their praise to you, when they make a joyful noise from the depths of their heart, that is more pleasing to you than choirs of angels and archangels. So grant us the grace, Lord, to worship with great sincerity, to put ourselves aside and to worship you. And even, Lord, when the air is stale, when the lights are flickering, when it's hard to hear the word, grant us the grace, Lord, to concentrate, to listen For that still, small voice, your voice, which speaks a word of life. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. What's that?